The views and opinions of findings and or devices discussed in this podcast are those of the host, subject matter experts, and or guests. Facts represented constitute our understanding at the time of the podcast, whereas updated factual information may be developed. They should not be construed as pronouncing an official Department of Defense's position, policy, decision, or endorsement. Hi, welcome to Clinical Updates in Brain Injury Science Today, or CUBIST, a podcast for healthcare providers about current research on traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. This program is produced by the TBI Center of Excellence, or TBI-COE. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Monty. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Keith Stusey, a family practice sports medicine physician and TBI subject matter expert at TBI-COE. Keith and I will discuss a study entitled, High Lifetime Blast Exposure Using the Blast Exposure Threshold Survey is Associated with Worse Warfighter Brain Health Following Mild Traumatic Brain Injury by Dr. Rail Lang and colleagues, and published in the Journal of Neurotrauma in October 2023. In addition, we've invited Dr. Rail Lang, the lead author of the paper, to comment on their findings. Welcome, Rail. Thank you for inviting me, Katie. I really appreciate this paper being highlighted in the podcast today and for the opportunity to discuss the results. We're glad to have you. Keith, thanks for bringing this article to our attention. So why was the study done? Hi, Katie, and welcome, Dr. Lang. So glad to have you here to discuss your research. So we know that repetitive head trauma has been associated with an increased risk for cognitive and psychological problems, poor health-related outcomes, as well as pathophysiologic changes in the brain. Specifically, in the military, a common source of repetitive head trauma relates to blast exposures experienced during training and or combat deployments via the use of heavy weapons and explosives. There is some evidence to suggest that high-level blast exposure may cause transient neurotrauma based on self-reported symptoms, cognitive functioning, and physiologic markers. Unfortunately, there have been several limitations with research that has shown this relationship between high-lifetime blast exposure and worse self-reported symptoms in both TBI and non-TBI populations. The first limitation is the manner in which lifetime blast exposure has been measured. In nearly every study, lifetime blast exposure has been measured using only one simple broad question. For example, in your life, how often were you close enough to an explosion in which you felt a blast wave? However, recently, a new measure called the Blast Exposure Threshold Survey, or BETS, has become available that captures more of the complexity of an individual's blast exposure history, such as type, level, and frequency. The second limitation to previous studies is that they did not control for the influence of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. PTSD is known to have profound influence on neurobehavioral symptom reporting and is a critical factor for all researchers to take into consideration. My understanding is the purpose of this study was to extend previous research by examining the relationship between lifetime blast exposure and neurobehavioral functioning after mild TBI by, number one, using a more comprehensive measure of lifetime blast exposure, the aforementioned BATS, and number two, control for the influence of PTSD. It was hypothesized that high lifetime blast exposure would be associated with worse neurobehavioral outcomes after mild TBI. I certainly agree that blast exposure is a problem. During my time in the military, I saw firsthand the effects that blast had on our service members. Addressing their symptoms can be challenging, especially when they would present with chronic symptoms months to years following their exposure. So Keith, how was the study done? 
So there were 103 United States service members and veterans who were literate in English and 18 years or older. They were prospectively enrolled in the TBI Center of Excellence 15-year longitudinal TBI study and had a diagnosis of mild TBI confirmed through record review. They were recruited from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, and Naval Medical Center San Diego, as well as from community events. All participants were enrolled between February and September of 2022. Participants completed the bets as well as a two and a half hour battery of neurobehavioral measures that included the Traumatic Brain Injury Quality of Life, or TBI QOL, the Combat Exposure Scale, or CES, the PTSD Checklist Civilian Version, or the PCLC, and the Neurobehavioral Symptom Inventory, or NSI. I'd like to specifically discuss the BETS and the PCLC. The BETS is designed to gather detailed information related to a person's lifetime blast exposure to a variety of weapons classified in five categories, ranging from small arms, such as pistols or rifles, to larger targeted explosives in close range, such as breaching explosives or heavy charges. For each category, the respondent is required to provide information on how many years, months per year, days per month, and rounds per day they were exposed to these weapons. The bets is scored by calculating a generalized blast exposure value, or GBEV, using a weighted formula as outlined by the test developers. The GBEV represents the units of blast exposure over a person's lifetime. Of course, higher GBEV values reflect greater lifetime blast exposure. In regards to the PCLC, this is a 17-item measure designed to evaluate self-reported PTSD symptoms. For the purposes of this study, because many of the PCLC items overlap with post-concussion symptoms, an alternate total score, the PCLC total 1 through 8, was calculated that consisted of only those symptoms on the PCLC that were considered unique to PTSD. The alternate total score was obtained by summing the ratings for items 1 through 8, so the total score range would be between 8 and 40, and was used as a covariate in the select analysis. Two PTSD categories were then used for select analysis. There was high PTSD, which had a score of greater than 16, and low PTSD, which had a score less than or equal to 16. A score of plus or minus 16 was selected as a cutoff because it equates to a mean score of 2 on the PCLC rating scale that is reflective of mild or higher symptom endorsement. Thanks for that brief overview, Keith. I'd like to welcome Dr. Lang into the conversation. Can you explain the statistical analysis and what groups were studied? Well, thanks again for having me, Katie. So one of the driving forces behind why we did this study was because past research in this area has not used a comprehensive measure of lifetime blast exposure like the BITS. However, this is by no means a failure of past research to do their job properly. You know, that's quite the opposite. It's just that this type of measure has not been available until recently. So it's been impossible for researchers to use a measure like this until now. By using the BETS, we hope that this measure will provide us with a greater level of granularity that will help us better understand the effects of repeated low-level blast exposure on warfighter brain health. Now, a critical part of this study was to focus on understanding the influence of lifetime blast exposure on neurobehavioral symptoms in the context of PTSD. PTSD is very well known to have a strong influence on neurobehavioral symptoms, so we wanted to control for that factor. Now, we did this in a simple manner by creating four groups 
by classifying everyone into high versus low PTSD symptom categories, and then also high versus low blast exposure categories. And what we did then was simply compare the neurobehavioral symptoms across some of these groups in an effort to sort of isolate the effects of blast exposure while controlling for PTSD. So for example, we first examined the influence of high versus low blast exposure in service members with PTSD symptoms. And then we examined the influence of high versus low blast exposure in service members with no PTSD symptoms. That's great, Dr. Lang. Now, could you give a brief summary of your results? Like, how did the high versus low lifetime blast exposure groups compare in neurobehavioral functioning? And was PTSD an influencer in those outcomes? Sure. So what we found in this study was that high lifetime blast exposure was associated with worse neurobehavioral symptoms following mild traumatic brain injury. And these were things like, you know, post-concussion symptoms from the NSI, but also more comprehensive measures like depression, fatigue, poor sleep, headaches, and anger from the TBI qual. Uh, However, in this study, we also found that the strength of the relationship between blast exposure and symptoms was influenced by the presence or absence of PTSD. So when service members reported no PTSD symptoms, there was a strong effect of lifetime blast exposure on neurobehavioral symptoms. So high blast exposure was associated with more severe symptoms. However, when service members reported the presence of PTSD symptoms, the effect of lifetime blast exposure on neurobehavioral symptoms was only moderate at best, but there was an effect of blast that we could see. So, and I think in this case, the reason why the effect of blast was only moderate was because PTSD has such a strong effect on neurobehavioral symptoms that it tends to wash out any effects that blast might have when PTSD is present. Now, that said, it's important to appreciate that overall, these results did show that there was a consistent effect of blast exposure on neurobehavioral symptoms, but the strength of the effect varied depending on the presence or absence of PTSD. Now, these findings are particularly interesting because there's an ongoing controversy regarding whether lifetime blast exposure influences neurobehavioral symptoms because of neuropathological damage caused by repeated low-level blast exposures over time, or is it simply a proxy for the effects of PTSD? Now, what I mean by that is PTSD is very common in service members with high blast exposure. Because PTSD has such a profound influence on neurobehavioral symptoms, if you don't control for PTSD, any effects of high blast exposure that might be seen could simply be an artifact of the high number of service members with PTSD in that group. However, the findings from this study did show that blast exposure had an effect on neurobehavioral symptoms even in the absence of PTSD. And I think these data supports the contention that high lifetime blast exposure does have a negative influence on warfighter brain health independent of PTSD. Now, one caveat I wanna mention here is that, you know, the sample size of this study was small and more data is needed to be more confident in this conclusion. Great. Keith, what were the limitations of the study? So first, I think that any study that relies solely on self-report for the primary study variable is inherently less valid than those with more objective measures. For example, there are many reasons why a service member or veteran may be more or less likely to disclose their blast exposure. 
The more remote the exposure, the harder it may be to recall. While the BETS is a significant step forward in trying to determine a service member's exposure to blast events, more objective measures such as body and helmet sensors will be more accurate, but we still have a ways to go in fidelity and interpretation of sensor data. In addition, there was no control group for comparison as these data were not available. And lastly, I'll just say that while all participants did have a medically documented diagnosis, a mild TBI from a DOD medical treatment facility or VA hospital, the presence of a mild traumatic brain injury could not be confirmed in approximately 42% of the sample based on a comprehensive TBI history interview and consensus case conferencing with subject matter experts. And this was brought out in the article. This was largely because of the use of rigorous criteria for establishing the presence of alteration of consciousness, which is a diagnostic criterion that is often applied uncritically within the military healthcare setting. Thanks, Keith. Rail, what key points would you like primary care providers to take away from this study? Uh, thanks, Katie. Yeah, there are probably four to five key messages discussed in this paper that I think are important, but in the interest of time, I'll just focus on three of these issues. You know, the first key message to highlight here is that primary care providers should be particularly concerned when a service member reports PTSD symptoms and a history of high lifetime blast exposure. The reason why that's the case is that we know that PTSD by itself has a strong influence on neurobehavioral symptoms. In addition, high blast exposure by itself appears to have at least a moderate influence on symptoms. However, when combined, PTSD and high blast exposure has a very strong negative influence on neurobehavioral symptoms. So this combination should be considered a significant red flag for immediate treatment intervention. The second message relates to a point that Keith just made a few minutes ago regarding the limitations of self-report measures of blast like the bets. Look, there's no doubt in my mind, I agree with Keith 100%, objective measures of blast like wearable blast sensors are clearly superior at measuring blast exposure compared to self-report measures like the bits. There's no question about it, but objective blast measures also have their limitations. Unfortunately, these tools can only be used to measure what we can measure today. And it would take many years, if not decades, to gather the same type of information that we can get from the bits. So I think self-report measures like the bits are very important and they do play a valuable role in helping us to understand the effects of repeated low-level blast exposures over many years. That said, my third message is a word of caution and is probably the most important takeaway message for primary care providers. Unfortunately, we cannot yet recommend that the BETS be used as a clinical tool. One of the biggest limitations of the BETS and, and other measures like it is that they all rely on retrospective recall of blast exposures over many years. So even with the most well-designed structured instrument, any retrospective recall of blast exposure is potentially subject to bias. And that's things like under-reporting and over-reporting and inconsistency. Now, inconsistency of reporting is a particular concern for the BETS. In order for us to conclude that the BETS is actually doing a good job and can be used clinically, it really needs to consistently measure lifetime blast exposure when we give the measure to the same person twice. Now, I'm a test development geek, and when we refer to that as test-retest reliability, and unfortunately, some preliminary test-retest data from our own group does not look promising for the BETS and may ultimately not allow us to recommend the bets to be used clinically, but I do want to stress that this is preliminary data. 
we need to collect more to evaluate this issue further. And fortunately, not only is our group collecting this type of data, but there are other researchers within the TBICOE network, like Dr. Jamie Hershaw from Fort Carson, who is also collecting this type of data. That said, I do want to make it clear that I think the BETS is a very promising tool. And if the test retest data that we are collecting right now does not go in its favor, I think there will be some ways to make a few minor adjustments to the BETS to improve on it so that it will ultimately be a useful tool. That's great insight to how these self-report measures are developed and tested. So that's all the time we have for today. You can keep up to date on future episodes by subscribing to Cubist on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also find links to the articles we discuss and other relevant resources. Cubist is produced and edited by Vinnie White and was hosted today by me, Dr. Katie Monty. It is a product of the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, a branch of the Research Portfolio Management Division under the Research and Engineering Directorate of the Defense Health Agency, led by Branch Chief Captain Scott Coda, Medical Corps, United States Navy. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you.